Good morning, City Church. This is Dixie Galtney. My husband Peter and I co-lead the Riverside Neighborhood Group. And when we get back to meeting as a full group, we and our little daughter Shiloh would love to see you there. This morning we're reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church of East Nashville. My name is Nate Sheridan. I pastor Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, just south of you guys. So in other words, I'm, I'm one of your neighbors. And I am honored to be asked by Mitchell Carter, one of your pastors, and also approved by your session to be able to come and open up God's Word with you from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 this morning. What an amazing passage we have. And so I'm pinching myself at the privilege to being able to do this. And so thank you for letting me come into your homes this morning, wherever it is you are, uh, maybe on the couch or at the dining room table on the back patio, maybe gathered with friends or roommates or or a few neighbors, or maybe you're just by yourself this morning, you and the Lord connected to the body of East Nashville through this technology as together we're worshiping God. Wherever it is you are, just be encouraged. The Spirit of God promises to be there, and He promises to use His Word to minister to you in just the way that you need. I want to ask the Lord to open up all of our hearts As we come before this word this morning, ask him to meet with us in a powerful way that we might in faith behold the face of Jesus Christ in the word. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, what an honor to be here in your presence, to open up your word, to be dependent upon your spirit, to illuminate, to to bring brightness from this word into our hearts, the truth and the glory of who Christ is. We are utterly dependent upon you right now, and we would pray that you would meet us, that this word that goes forth would return void, but it would accomplish everything for which you send it. Lord, you hear that prayer request and answer it according to your will. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have heard the old joke, What does it mean when a preacher says, finally, in the midst of his sermon? Well, it means absolutely nothing. (laughs) How many of us have actually been in a sermon where the pastor, you think he's getting close to finishing because he said, finally, and then he goes on for another 10 minutes or more. Well, in some sense, the Apostle Paul has actually been accused of that very thing Here in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9, he says right there at the opening in verse 8, finally, brothers, and then he continues for a good little while before he finishes this letter. 
we might say it's something of a preacher's finally here from the Apostle Paul in verse 8 of the text that's before us. But actually, I want to note for you something that's actually happening textually and maybe why the Apostle Paul is using that word finally, not so much as I'm about to terminate this letter, though he's not too far from ending it, but instead he's saying, I have one final piece of advice to give to you in light of what I've just said. So listen up. Finally, brothers. Now, that's an important note in our text as we begin to explore verses 8 and 9 together. Because I want to just pull your memory back to last week when you begin to look at verses 6 and 7, the verses just previous to where it is we are this morning. Very well-known passage of Scripture where Paul says, do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication, make your requests or let your requests be known to God. And this God, whom you make your requests known to, He will send His peace. The peace of God will be with you and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I believe as the Apostle Paul tells us, listen, you need to cast your cares upon the Lord. He cares for you. And as you offer up prayers to Him and offload your anxieties on Him, you will begin to experience the peace of God. And I hope that you can hear the audience of Philippi going, okay, Paul, how do I do that though? Because we've all prayed, haven't we? Uh, We've given up our anxieties to God and (laughs) we find ourselves almost immediately taking those anxieties back up? I mean, haven't you prayed in such a way where your fears and your anxieties haven't really departed? They've still been stuck in your heart even though you've tried to pray? I think we've probably all been there. And if I can get into the minds of the Philippians and maybe even the minds of mind of the Apostle Paul just a little bit and ask the question, how do we pray in such a way so that we truly release our anxieties to God? And the communion that comes in God and the peace that's a fruit of that communion begins to really guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How does that really happen? I think Paul is saying to us in this passage, you're going to need to think this way. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if your mind is wrapped up in these things, and you pray from a mind that's being lifted up into the realities of these things, and you're casting your anxieties before God, offloading them, putting them on His back, because He's going to do all the heavy lifting. If you are thinking in that way and praying from that thought pattern, from that headspace, then you're going to begin to experience the peace of God. Or as he says here in this passage, the God of peace will dwell with you. He will commune with you. And so as we approach the word this morning, I want you to ask yourself, where is your head? Where, where's your heart? What is your thought patterns right now? And begin to ask the Lord as we think on the things that we ought to think on. And we ask the Lord to renew our minds in Christ Jesus. That the six objectives that Paul calls us here to think about, to govern our thought patterns, to ask the Lord prayerfully as I'm preaching, as we're reflecting on this word, ask the Lord to begin to take hold of the mental patterns of your mind. Begin to help you identify the ways in which you have been 
shot through with thoughts that are not these six objectives so that you can begin to know what real, true, and deep peace is all about. Now, as you begin in that prayerful listening from that spot in this sermon, I want to just acknowledge before you that these six virtues that Paul gives us are to govern or guide our thinking are virtues that may seem somewhat random at first. But these six virtues were widely known to the church at Philippi. In fact, these virtues were held in high esteem among the Greco-Roman world in the ancient um, Near Eastern context that Paul is speaking into. So Paul is not picking these virtues out of thin air, but he's really borrowing on the capital that was built into the worldview or the mind of the audience there at Philippi. He's using the building blocks of the world in which they lived, and he's building a bridge from that world into into a Christian vision for life. The fancy word that scholars like to use and theologians will speak of is that Paul here is doing a little bit of contextualization. He's taking into mind his audience, and he's, he's rummaging through the capital that's already in the cultural air that they breathe. And he's identifying it, and then he's bridging it or connecting it to a Christian world and life view. We might say he's recasting it or renewing it or redefining it in Christian ways connected to the gospel. Some of you may have heard the the book. Well, let's see, the author is actually a pretty well-known missiologist, of the 20th century. His name is Leslie Newbegin. He wrote, a, he wrote a number of volumes, but one of the volumes that he wrote is called A Word in Season. And in that volume, uh, Newbegin says we have, to, we have to navigate between two dangers as we try to bear witness for Christ in the world. He says on the one hand, we need to avoid the danger of being so separate from the culture that we find no contact point with the culture for the preaching of the gospel. And then he says, on the other hand, we have to avoid the danger of becoming so culturally embedded that we allow every point of contact with the culture to determine the way the gospel message is received. Newbegin says we've got we've to navigate between what we might call enculturization in the church, um, where we fall over into the world rather than keep ourselves distinct from the world. And we also have to uh, guard against building a wall from the world or separating ourselves out from the world where we don't have any contact point for the communication of the gospel. Uh, Newbegin, I think, wisely is saying we have to steer between these dangers. We have to faithfully adapt and build bridges between the audiences that we're communicating. We might say in your context, your neighbors in East Nashville who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ and of whom you may want to share the gospel with. You have to listen and know their hearts. You have to pay attention to what's in their context, what's the heartbeat of their lives, their drives, their thought patterns, and begin to see where there may be capital that you can address and connect the message of the gospel to without 
letting the gospel be shaped by their thoughts, worldly and separated out from the word of God they may be, and yet at the same time have a viable communication point so that a bridge for the gospel is built and what we would pray, um, our neighbors and friends who we love around us would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is demonstrating, and I think what Newbegin is actually suggesting here in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And I think one of the ways that we see that deeply connected in the text is that these six objectives can easily be regarded as three pairs of similar things. In fact, Dr. Howell Jones in his commentary on Philippians, he pulls together three couplets among these six objectives. He says, if you pair together truth and honor, you can see that those two are speaking to the ideas of truth and the way that truth should be received. If you pull together justice and purity, you can see that those two virtues are speaking to morality and its effect in the world. And if you pull together the virtues of loveliness and commendability, um, you can you can see the connection in those two virtues to the to the things which are beautiful or pleasing in the world. Once you break up these six of virtues into these three couplets, it doesn't take long to see an ancient paradigm emerge, a paradigm which Paul himself knew very well, and again, which the church at Philippi knew, the ancient triad of truth goodness and beauty. Now, it may have been a while since you've read the Greek philosopher Plato. Maybe there's a few philosophers listening this morning, but some of you may have to you know, kind of dust off the cobwebs of your mind here to go back to that intro to philosophy class in, in college. So it may be a little while since you've read some Plato, but you'll know that the virtues of truth, goodness, and beauty uh, showed up a lot in Plato's writing and were all over the place in Paul's day as he was writing to the church in Philippi and even the other letters um, in the New Testament. Uh, These were sometimes called, truth, beauty, and goodness, sometimes called transcendental virtues. That's how Plato referred to them in the Republican and his other dialogues. He spent a great deal of energy defining these as the ideals for the way people ought to live and what commonwealths and governments should aspire to, that we should set our minds on things that are true and good and beautiful. It seems clear that Paul is plundering again these cultural and sociological norms of the first century, and he's using them now for gospel purposes. He's, we might say, repurposing them and using the assumptions for Christian purposes. Although I think all that's true and all that's really important, I don't think that's the primary thing that the Apostle Paul is is doing uh, in this this section in Philippi. It seems to me that he's pulling even more deeply from the biblical narrative than from the cultural context. Now, why do I say that? Well, when you begin to think through the whole of the biblical story, the themes of truth, goodness, and beauty— Uh, which are bound up in these six virtues that Paul is giving us here, uh, go all the way back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible. Go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. What do I mean? Well, one day Eve, as best we know, minding her own business, is approached by the craftiest of beasts which God um, had created, the serpent. And the serpent poses a question. Intending to get Eve thinking, 
we might say, intending to get Eve doubting. The serpent raised the question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you'll remember from Genesis chapter 2 that the woman responds, no, it's really not like that. We may eat of any tree of the garden, but from that tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we can't eat. In fact, if we do, we're going to die. And the serpent essentially says, hogwash to that, (laughs) you won't die. God knows very well that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, magic will happen, like great magic, good magic will happen. You'll begin to turn into God yourself. You'll be like him. You'll know good and evil. And then in the the following verses there in Genesis 2, you probably see, you know, we kind of get into the pages of the passage, Eve sort of gets the wheels of her mind turning there, starts looking long and hard at the tree, and then we're, t- we're given the internal dialogue of Eve's mind. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, did you notice the thought process? that Eve went through as she evaluated the tree? (laughs) Well, let me break it down for you with reference to Philippians 4, 8 and 9 in this ancient triad of good, goodness and beauty and truth. She first said that the tree was good for food. Notice it was good. Despite the fact what God had said, she was making her own judgment about what was true about the tree. She said it was good. And then notice what she did next. She said the tree was a delight to the eyes. In other words, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And then finally, she said the tree was desired to make one wise. In other words, it had the ability to impart truth, to give to her a knowledge that was not given to her by God, something better was out there of which the creation itself could impart. Here's what's fascinating about that. In one way of speaking, the fall of man took place when man quit thinking God's thoughts after him and started thinking on his own with his, without reference to God without submission to what God had already said he should be committed to. We begin trading God's definitions of what is true, God's definitions of what is good and beautiful. And the moment we did that, no surprise, the world began to be a place full of lies, full of evil, and full of ugliness. The opposites of truth, goodness, and beauty. Here's the reality. Thinking and choosing without reference to God is what got us in the trouble that we're now presently in. And friends, don't we see that in spades all around us right now in the world? It's in technicolor. When we're watching the news or we're engaging with the current events and the structures which are around us and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, don't we find lies? Don't we find 
wickedness and evil? Don't we find ugliness being portrayed in almost every corner of our present world? And if that reality is with us right now and the fruit of that reality comes from the fact that we have traded man's definitions or God's definitions for man's definitions of what are true goodness and beauty, wouldn't it be right to say that the only way forward is for us to begin to abandon the false definitions of truth, goodness, and beauty that we have opted for to return to the original definitions which God has given to us and begin to think with reference to God again, that that would begin to get us out of the trouble that we're currently in. Well, I'd like to suggest that's exactly what's going on in the gospel. And I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is after here. He's saying, church at Philippi, you've got to begin to set your mind on the things that God says is true, that God says is honorable, that God says is just, that God says is pure and lovely and commendable. Let your headspace be there. If your headspace is not there, you know what's going to happen. You're going to be filled with anxieties because you're going to be caught up in the lies of the world, the the wickedness of the world, and the ugliness of the world. And when you pray, your heart's going to just be so filled with those things and your mind's so filled with those things that you're going to find yourself not experiencing the peace of God's communion with you. And so I want you to think, Church at Philippi, City Church of East Nashville, I want you to think along these lines, pray along these lines, and begin to experience in God's Word, through His revelation, what truth, goodness, and beauty really are. And begin to have those give shape to your life. You see, that's what Paul means with this word to think in Philippians uh, 4, 8, and 9. It's actually the Greek word logizomai, which means to ponder, to consider, to, to conclude, to reckon. It's a strong verb that doesn't just speak with flippant sort of thoughts, not, not those kind of thoughts that come in our minds and out of our minds all day long, but a kind of ponderous habit or pattern of thinking. He says, I want all of these things to sort of be where your headspace is day in and day out. It's essentially what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You remember that, that classic verse? Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the patterns of thinking and of acting uh, be the patterns of your thinking and acting um, instead, but be transformed, he says, by the renewing of what? Your minds. That is, let whatever's true, whatever's honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable, let those things take residence in your mind in such a way that it begins to move all of what you are into all of what you do. In fact, we might even say, until a new you begins to emerge. Uh, this thinking or renewal of mind is, is, um, is the daily work of the Christian to set before us the things which God 
wants our minds to be occupied. Don't, don't you find, I sometimes say this at uh, Cornerstone, that the Christian life is one where you have to relearn it every day. Uh, you, you wake up and immediately you're going to be bombarded with a million things. And if you have the habit of checking your iPhone or your Android phone or whatever it is you've got, and you start hitting the headlines and you start catching up on the news. And if that begins to work in your minds and you look at your bank account and you get stressed out about what's going on and you haven't filled your mind with the things that Paul is speaking of here, those anxieties are going to rise, right? Stressors are going to rise. And until you begin to renew yourself in the, the truth of God's Word and begin in that Word to encounter Christ again and remember what's truly true, what Francis Schaeffer used to say, the true truth, when you begin to really embrace it, um, you won't begin to experience that peace that Paul is after for us here. And Paul says this, this is something that he practiced in front of them. Isn't that great there in verse 9? He says, remember that I practiced these things in front of you. I gave you an example of what this looked like. So this is, this is not just academic book learning. It's not just you meditating. But it's, it's in community helping each other think these things. Right? This is what's so hard about the season that we've been in in quarantine that one of the ways that God spurs our thoughts to what is good, right, and true and um, sets before our minds the things which are beautiful, one of the ways God's a, God accomplishes that is through each other. How many times is a friend of yours or maybe a, um, a shepherd there at City Church or someone in your small group has, uh, as you've been praying, as you've been um, sharing or confessing to them struggles that you're experiencing, they begin to remind you of the truth of God's word. Maybe they put a um, they put their arm around you, they pray for you, and uh, they begin to whisper the truths of God's word into your ear, and you begin to be reminded of that which is true and honorable and just and pure and so forth. And as you are, you find your soul exhales, and the peace of God becomes yours. If you've had that experience, and I pray you've had um, dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands of times, um, you're experiencing what Paul has in mind here. Paul is saying, not only is it our getting our head to think these things, it's getting our community to group think these things, to meditate, ponder, to press into each other's lives in such a way that we have it demonstrated before us what it means to truly live the Christian life. And so Paul, as he's calling us to these things, he's calling us into a rich understanding of what it means to walk in Christ together. I uh, was struck upon the passage at the beginning of um, the Gospel of John, John 1.14, a passage that we usually visit during the Christmas season, uh, reminding ourselves of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But I was struck reading it again this week um, and just the same patterns that are showing up here in Philippians 4, 8, 9 of where our minds need to be on the things that are true and good and beautiful. That John gives us a portrait of Jesus as one who is true, good, and beautiful. He, He says to us, the Word was made flesh. Speaking of Jesus, the Word was made flesh. And He dwelt, He lived among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. As John's recounting his encounter and experience of being in the 
the presence of the person of Jesus Christ and knowing the power of who he is and what it is that he's done. Notice he uses very similarly the language that Paul is pulling together here in truth, goodness, and a beauty. The language of the language of um, the gospel. Uh, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the truth incarnate. He is full of grace. The, the goodness of God and the mercy of God made available to you and me. And we have seen His glory. It is beautiful in our eyes. That's what John is saying. Jesus is balled up into one, rolled into one, the fullest expression of that which is true and of that which is good and that which is beautiful. And if I can, if I can tag that into, uh, toggle that towards Paul's words here in Philippians 4, 8, 9, it's as if Paul is saying, listen, whatever you see is true out there. Whatever you see is good out there in the world. Whatever you see is beautiful out there in the world. Whatever you see in the word that is true, good, and beautiful, trace those things unto the thing that is most true, unto the thing that is most good and most beautiful. And what is that? Well, of course, it's, it's our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. He is the one where our eyes and our gaze must be set. And listen, friends, today, as just before I was um, preparing to preach the sermon to you and share this incredible word of truth, I begin to think about the cross and the mystery and the paradox of the cross. Because you know, the cross is in one sense... um, from the world's perspective, and if we look at it just in a horizontal way, it's the ugliest thing in the world. And, it's, and it is also uh, anything but good. It, it's completely unjust and totally unpure what was done to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not lovely. It's not commendable. It's completely unjust. It's completely impure. And everything that, was, that Jesus was charged with and all of what the chief priests and the scribes and, and others were claiming about Jesus were nothing but lies. Here, the Word made flesh, full of truth, goodness, and beauty, is being attacked by the world through lies, through impure and unjust um, structures and actions. And they're putting before us on the cross something that is absolutely, horrifically ugly. And here's the reality. The reason that for us is beautiful and good and the essence of truth is because on the cross, Jesus is taking all of our lies and all of our wickedness and all of our ugliness And he is taking it on himself and he is nailing it to the cross once and for all so that you and I can enter into the truth of the gospel, can be clothed in the goodness of the righteousness of Jesus, and can one day be glorified in the presence of our heavenly father, full of grace and truth, that we would be beautiful. We would be 
holy even as he is holy. Friends, that day is coming. And do you, do you right now, oh man, as you look at the world around us, do you right now just long for that? Do you find your soul wanting to say, oh Lord, how long before you return? Well, listen, friends, let that cry come. Let that aspiration and hope rise because not until that beautiful day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back will this world fully be true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. We want to think on those things. We want to labor for those things, but it won't be until the king comes back that all those things take root. And so friends, I just tell you, set your hearts there this morning. Rest in Christ. Cast your gaze towards that which is true and good and beautiful and find that it is fully realized in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Lord in heaven right now, begin to knead and, and work these truths into our souls like leaven leavens the whole lump. Uh, brand us, if need be, with this truth into our souls and into our hearts so that it becomes unforgettable. Lord, transform us now by the renewing of our minds that in everything we would be people who think and live over the things which are true, good, and beautiful, that we would honor the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would increasingly become faithful witness bearers to Him in a world that is often evil, full of lies and ugliness, and is desperately looking for truth, goodness, and beauty. And they need the definitions of your word and they need the picture, the vision of who Jesus is. Lord, help us to be aids towards that end. Amen.